Welcome back, everyone. Today, I am joined by my good mate and fellow fit trainer, Luke Baden. Luke is an incredible fitness trainer. His approach and his mindset to training and to life is truly inspiring. I really enjoyed this conversation with Luke. We talk a lot in this episode about mental health and also about addiction and recovery as well. So we are going to leave links in the show notes. If you're listening to this conversation and you need to reach out for professional help or support around addiction and recovery, then please do check out the links. Okay, let's dive into this week's episode with Luke Baden. Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Luke, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I'm so glad that you've agreed to come and be a guest on the podcast. Obviously, I know you, you know, we work together at Fit and I'm just really excited actually to to sit down and have this conversation with you. So thank you. Yeah, no worries. No worries. I'm happy to help. Well, for anyone who follows you online, they will know you as the superstar fitness trainer that you are. And, you know, you have an incredible passion and knowledge for fitness and training. Can you take us back a bit to when and why this passion for health and fitness and training, when that all started? Yeah, I think um, where it came in initially was my, I kind of, um, my early life was really an attempt to please my father if that makes sense and i think that's i think that's quite common with lots of people is the this need to uh, make their parents proud um and that sort of detracts from them see, finding their own life purpose really so um in my teens at school I, everything was just to uh impress dad just to say you know i've got the i got the gcse's dad I've got the A-levels, Dad. Uh, what uni should I go to, Dad? Um, all that stuff. And uh, while I was at university, my father passed away, unfortunately. Um, and that was very painful. But it was also a moment of self-realization that up until that point, I'd been living my life in a manner of just seeking his approval. Um, and it forced me to quite quickly question um, what I wanted my life to be and what and who I wanted to become. Um, so I sort of had this uh, mini reawakening at you know, 20, 21, 22 years old, where I realized that I was studying philosophy at, at university um, and I didn't want to do that. I wasn't interested. There's not many great jobs going in, in uh, philosophical uh, debate. And I realized everything had just been kind of uh, a means to seek approval. And I realized that I had a great passion for fitness because I spent most of my time at university actually, you know, ditching lectures and training in a gym. And I had a sort of a, a moment of clarity, if you will, where I thought, you know what, now's the time to go after the things I want to go after. I enjoy exercise. Um, I enjoy time in the gym. Um, and that's what I'm going to do. So that is where it all started for me um, in terms of me making that decision to be like, this is what I, I want to do with my life. This is what will give me purpose and joy rather than 
I'm doing things just to please other people, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think, to be honest, um, did you say you were 21 at the time? 21 when you... When yeah, you 20, 20, 21, 22, sort of. It, it, you know, it wasn't a, an, an overnight thing, but it was uh, around that time, yeah. So I was already, you know, three years deep into my into my degree. Because hmm. I think it's actually quite a young age to be... To, to have that kind of realization. I think some people realize that in their late 30s or their late 40s that actually, yeah. you know what, I've been going through the motions of my life. And as you said, appeasing other people, I've been doing the things that other people expected me to do or wanted me to do. And they never really question it. And they might be, yeah, late 30s, late 40s, when they actually reflect and go, did I choose any of this life or did this just kind yeah. of happen? So I think, you know, I can't imagine how, how difficult that time in your life was, but I suppose, yeah, really having that clarity that, as you described it as an awakening to go, what do I want to do? And, and, and I guess maybe thinking about mortality maybe as well and going, you know what, life is, you're only going to get one. So what do I really want to do with it? Yeah, I think you've absolutely nailed it with the, with the mortality there and this, this sense of, um, I, I felt like me and my father are very similar. Um, it's a look at us at the set, set, you know, if you look at me at 30, if you look at him at 30, we, we're, we're the spitting image of each other. Uh, same height, same build, uh, you know, same, same facial structure, everything. So I'm sort of like one of those where it's like Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And I felt like, um, I, and I was an only child and uh, my mum passed away uh, when I was young. So I spent a lot of time just with just with my father and watching him and there was a real uh, romantic side to him that wanted to get out he wanted to I, I think underneath he wanted to be an actor he, he'd done some acting at, um, at a sort of like a level age and then he'd quickly decided that he needed to earn money he needed to you know have the wife have the kid become the chartered accountant which is what he became and uh, that yearning never left him and you know and then and then he passed away and that's you know for me i did i didn't want you know my life to follow that track of constantly doing things for other people and a, and a feeling of um oh well it's a sensible choice oh well you know it it makes other people happy it, it appeases everyone around me um and then get to a point where it's too late to do the thing you actually want to do uh and then you know and then it's all over it was a, a bit painful at that time, but also it was quite liberating. Um, and it, uh, you know, it, it put me on the course of, of which I'm on now, so. Yeah, and it's interesting that you said about your dad being an actor because you are quite a showman, Luke. You know, you're creative, you're fun, you don't take yourself too seriously. I know you love to, you know, it's a performance, a lot of your coaching, the way you speak on set and the fit studio, but also the way you coach. You know, I know you like to be in front of a group and, I mean, you literally just ran a half marathon in a pair of tiny pants in January in the freezing cold. <laughs> so, you know, I, I guess, as I said, you've got a showman side of you. Have, have you always... Yeah, being a performer, do you, have you always wanted to kind of be in the spotlight as well? No, I, I mean, I think there's always been a, an undercover yearning to be in the spotlight. But I think many people feel that, you know, not necessarily just performers. Um, but I, my, my early years were one of an introvert, quiet, um, shy, um, retiring, you know, not wanting to be in focus. And then... As I went on this journey of fitness, I, I learned these attributes of, a, of an extrovert, if you will, and then sort of honed them. So, you know, I'll, I wouldn't 
position myself as a classic extrovert. I don't, you know, the, if, if you take me to a nightclub, for example, I'll last about five minutes and then I'll disappear because it's, it's all a bit much. So all my confidence is kind of learned. So it's quite interesting. It's sort of like a Jekyll and Hyde thing where if you put me in a situation where I've learned the confidence, I can appear like one of the most confident people in the room. So for example, you know, when, when we f- uh, film on, on Fit, the app, I can go in there and be super confident, super engaging, super charismatic um, because I've learned how to be confident in that arena. But then you can, you know, put me in another situation, something that I've not experienced as much. uh, And then suddenly I'm back to I'm back to square one and I'm just a a mumbling little introvert. So it's quite interesting. I, I think some people it's this natural fire like with yourself. I definitely feel there's this natural a burning uh, fire to kind of you know be this ultimate showwoman. Where, whereas with me, it's underneath and it's in there. But I have to, I have to really, I've had to really learn, like learn and unlearn things to kind of to get me to a similar, a similar level. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's really great and interesting for people to hear that, I think, because, yeah, people do make assumptions and they assume, oh, well, if you are, if you present in a certain way, well, that's just naturally who you are or you've just always been that way. So it's, I think, really interesting for people to learn that actually these can be learned behaviours. It's not about faking it or, or masking it, but you can learn, as you said, in different arenas, in different settings to almost cultivate what's needed in that environment and to yeah. be able to become more confident in, in a way that whatever you need to. So no, I think it's, it's really fascinating. It's really great. So another thing that I want to talk to you about today is addiction and recovery. So you say that you're a recovering addict and you've been yeah. clean for nine years. And the word recovering, of course, means that it's ongoing. You know, it's not a final or final mm-hmm. something that you've conquered or completed. So I guess I've kind of got two questions really that I'd like to talk to you about. The first one is actually about addiction and this word. And now I feel like this word is used so often. People will literally say, oh, I'm addicted to that. You know, I'm addicted to social media or I'm addicted to shopping or we're constantly told by the media that we've become addicted to devices and we're addicted to, uh, you know, validation. And people sometimes use it even as a positive word when they'll just say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm obsessed with that. I'm I'm addicted to it. It's it's amazing. Um, And of course, you know, it can be true to an extent, but also I think people just now use that word just as a way to exaggerate. So I guess I'd love to hear from you, you know, how do you think the word addiction is, is I guess, being used quite recklessly? And what do you define as addiction? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I, I don't think I've ever thought about that, which is really uh, kind of a unique take on it. Um, so addiction, you know, and recovery traditionally we're thinking about uh drugs or alcohol obviously and there's two parts there's two parts to that addiction there's the obsession the mental obsession which is the inability to think about anything else other than using that chemical or 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 having a drink um and then there is the compulsion which is the inability to stop yourself then acting on that obsession in terms of people using the word, you know, if people want to exaggerate something and use that word addiction, that that's like completely fine by me. I think we all come to have our own understanding of certain words and the more complex the word and more meanings it has, the, the more time it takes us to come to understand it. And one of the big 
sort of landmarks when uh, you start the process of recovery is coming to terms with the fact that you are an addict. And that's something that you have to, it's a process you have to go through yourself and you have to kind of find your own meaning. So for myself, what it means to me, and I'm not precious about it meaning anything else to other people, it just means that if I put a chemical in my body, a drink or a drug, then the wheels come off in my life and my, my life becomes chaotic and unmanageable very, very quickly and I let people down. Um, so I need to make a concerted effort from now until infinity to not put a mind or mood altering chemical in my body. Um, so it's quite a real, a real pragmatic approach for me in that I, I looked at my life when I was you know, using chemicals and I include alcohol as a drug. Um, and I look at it when I'm not using those things. And when I'm not using those things, um, I don't let people down. I don't upset people anywhere near as much. Uh, you know, I'm not perfect, of course. Um, but my life is on the whole much better. And I don't get any in any dangerous or life threatening situations. And I don't numb my feelings. I can I can be in feelings and, and come to understand them on a deeper level. Um, and that's what it means to me. And every other addict in recovery, I'm sure, has a different meaning. Um, it's, you know, it, it's one of those things where we can we can find our own meaning in it. And in doing so, that potentially helps us in our recovery. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, the reason I ask, and I know it could sound a bit like, well, why are you fixating on the word? But I think it's because, you know, with so many things now, we kind of diminish the meaning of something when we, when yeah. we use a word just in that way. And then suddenly when someone says, you know, actually, I'm addicted, I think it also, it makes it great for people to understand, I think, as mm. well, when their addiction is becoming detrimental to their life. So the things mm. that you mentioned there are, you know, letting people down, getting yourself into, into, you know, dangerous, potentially dangerous situations, or, or when you mentioned, you know, becoming so obsessed that, that it's, it's taking over essentially, and it's, it's dominating, you know, your life. And I think maybe that's where for some people, maybe if they finding that line and, and, you know, realizing maybe when they've crossed that line of saying, you know, yeah, okay, recklessly or not recklessly might not even be the word but just casually saying oh yeah you know yeah i'm addicted to this versus actually noticing this is becoming detrimental to my life and whether that is mm. shopping or whether that is alcohol or whether that is something else this is having a detrimental effect on my life on on my relationships on my ability to to work to do other things and i think yeah potentially noticing when when that is like what was the, what was that like for you when did you notice what was it that made you say well hang on yeah. actually i can't carry on doing these things yeah i i think that's a really good question you know there are definitely levels to this thing um in terms of you know, as humans, we really we really like black and white, don't we? It's either this or it's that. It's addiction yeah. or it's not. Um, and there are lots of shades of grey in life. Um, but for me, it was a, a process of what I would go through versus what my friends would go through after a party or during a party or, you know, during a weekend was very different in quite a, quite a, a stark way in the, in the, the scrapes I was getting into. Um, and and the level of chaos was um, to a point where I was like, okay, this is this is different. This is not having a good time. This is this is something different. And at first, 
I think when you're young, you're early 20s uh, and, you, you know, you've not really known much of the world, the adult world, um, you kind of end up thinking you're the only one, you know, you're this sort of like special uh, defected thing that is doomed to always mess it up. And then when I found uh, the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous, which is where, where I sort of um, do my recovery, I started to realize that actually this is a sort of a progressive, incurable uh, disease that if left unchecked will ultimately be fatal. And when I um, did some further introspection doing the 12 steps, I kind of, um, in the first few steps of that, I kind of looked at the situations I was getting into and could see that this illness was progressing. So the first year was, the, sorry, the, you know, the second year was worse than the first year. And the third year was worse than the second year. The, the things that were happening were getting worse and worse. You know, it started it started off on like, um, you know, the first year when I was using was things like, you know, I let so-and-so down because I didn't show up to a dinner date we have. It's not, you know, it's not a big, it's not a big deal. But then, you know, the second year, it'd be more things like, I woke up in a park without any clothes on and I don't know where I've been for two days. So there's this, there's this progression of severity. And if you take that to its ultimate conclusion, which I didn't want to, it's going to be uh, jails, institutions or death. Um, and I, I didn't fancy any of those three options. So I, I opted to recover instead or, or, or be in recovery, should I say. Mm. Wow. And yeah, you use the word, you know, recovering and recovery, as, as I said, it's not, I guess, a finish line to be crossed. So what's that like for you? How's that, you know, journey? I said it's been nine years. So how do you mm. yeah, continue on that? And, and I guess avoid avoid thinking that, well, you know, you've, you've done that work. So you understand, OK, this is an illness for me. But how do you keep that, you know, in check mm -hmm. and not think, well, you know, I'm sure people have probably said to you, maybe because I think the society has this thing especially around alcohol and fun and freedom that's like yeah. oh you know come on lighten up just have a beer or you know mm -hmm. you know if you don't, you don't have to do drugs but just have like I say you know a couple of drinks you know let your hair down so yeah, yeah how do you manage that um so that that's a really really great point Adrian and that has been a real stumbling block for many many addicts is this um okay drugs are a major problem I stopped doing drugs and now next weekend I'll just go out with the lads and have a few beers. But unfortunately, when we put alcohol in our bodies, we then um, minimize our ability to make good decisions. And before we know it, we're back to square one again. So in the process of recovery, and it is a it's an ongoing daily process from from now until forever, um, there is quite a lot of looking at your past behaviors and, and, and looking at, at things that have happened and laying it all out in front of yourself, writing it down on paper and seeing that, okay, the people that say to me things like, like you just said, let your hair down, have a few drinks. Um, they don't know, you know, what, where that leads to me, for me, mm -hmm. because they've not been through that because when they let their hair down, they have a couple of drinks, they have a dance, they go home, they wake up the next day, they go to brunch with friends and it's all good, you know? Um, and, and in laying that out and, and, and seeing 
where that leads me uh, and seeing it on paper and sharing it with another human being and them looking at it and saying, you know what, I think the gig's up and you saying to yourself, do you know what, I do think the gig's up. Um, it, it, it really gives you that level of clarity. Um, and another thing I would say with that is the, the, the what you just said there, you know, that, oh, let, you, let your hair down, have a few drinks. When you are really an addict, um, your close friends stop saying that to you quite quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, they, mm -hmm. they suddenly understand that, that they can't say that to you because they, they're kind of the ones who've had to pick up the pieces, you know, uh, more times than they care to remember. So it does, um, it, you do stop hearing that after a while. Um, so, yeah. Well, it's interesting because at the start of January, I actually, you know, I, was, I did some Instagram questions. It was like Q&As and polls and I was asking people, you know, the year ahead, is anyone, you know, taking on a new challenge or making any changes or, you know, creating any new habits? And you know me, I love all of that stuff. And um, mm. a, a lot of people, probably more than I expected, I think it was like 40 to 50% of the answers that I had said, I'm giving up alcohol for Jan, I'm doing dry January, I'm giving up drinking for Jan. And even though for some people it might just be the month, they were saying, you know, oh, I indulged too much in December and, and actually I feel so much better. Like my head is clear in mm. the morning. I'm not foggy. Like I can, I don't feel as tired. You know, it's not just about the, for some people it might be the calorie consumption, but for other people, I think, you know, when something is daily or, or maybe four or five nights a week, having wine, having beers, they don't necessarily notice the effect on them physically and mentally, mm. but then removing it for two or three weeks, they're like, wow, I feel so different. So I guess the question for you is that, you know, it's, it's very different. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to say the two things are the same, you know, casually drinking and then giving it up for a month versus being an addict. But if someone's listening to this and thinking naturally, I drink too much or, or, or I take too many different substances and I actually want to stop. But actually, how's that going to impact my life? Because my friends, you know, go out and drink or my partner or how am I still going to engage in like my normal social activities if I'm now telling everybody, oh, I'm, I'm not drinking anymore. And how are they going to react and are they going to support me? Like, what advice would you have to someone mm. who wants to do that but is worried that they're going to have to like kind of cut out their friends or, or be, you know, miss out? That's a really good question. I, I think it's, um, I think what you'd need to qualify first is, you know, is someone giving it up for a period of abstinence that's fixed, you know, like a month. And I think it's a great idea, people coming into January and just, you know, you know, not drinking for the month. I think it's a really, really great way to start the year. It's a good way to make progress on other goals. Um, and it also give you a, a, a little bit of uh, clarity on, on why you do drink and it you know it's okay to, to to need a drink if if that's what you feel like you need but you know in taking it away from a month you might learn quite a lot in in um in why you you know potentially need that drink um so for those people you know it's just the time is fixed it's a day at a time you make it through those um you know 31 days um personally i think it'd be a great idea write down how you feel each day, you know, write down your moods, write down, you know, what you're thinking. Um, so you can see it all in front of you. You know, I think I'm a great believer in journaling. Um, and basically the 12 steps of recovery is kind of a, a process of, of, of journaling and sharing with another human. Um, in terms of long-term uh, abstinence from alcohol and drugs, it is a big change, you know, and if your life is built around nights out, glasses of wine, partying, then it's going to be a very dramatic change. So that's why I found 
for, for me and when i when i did come to recovery and decide okay this is you know now the party is officially over luke um you know this is getting really bad you've got to make a permanent change um i was in that position of my life was uh, filled with people who loved to party i i worked in nightclubs um alongside my pt job uh you, you know my my whole life was kind of centered around partying clubbing this and that um so it is a significant change so the first thing is you just got to acknowledge that that's what you're going through and if you're really gonna go for it then you're definitely gonna need support um i, I found the rooms in narcotics anonymous they were uh really really beneficial for me because it gives you that support network it gives you a new group of friends all who have this common goal of staying abstinent from drink and drugs uh, and you can build a new social circle and often when people really do have a problem with drink and drugs potentially the people that they're hanging around with are obviously enabling that behavior but also they only maybe know on a quite a shallow level. So if they do give up going out, you know, the phone stops ringing after a few weeks because kind of you lose all these fair weather friends, which is not really a loss anyway. But I definitely feel if someone does feel they have a problem and, and it is different, the scrapes that they're getting into and the chaos that they're causing and the lines that they cross in that they thought they'd never cross, then it's going to mean a significant change in their life. And, and in order to change, the support network has to change as well. So I would definitely advise them maybe looking into, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous and, and visiting those meetings. It's a, you know, as bonkers as it sounds, it's a it's a great place to go. It's, it's a place where you connect with others, um, you make friends, you build your social circle, you build a support network uh, and it's, you know, you meet like-minded people, all, all who are trying to get this thing we call recovery. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really important and nice thing to share around, you know, support and not doing everything by yourself. You know, I've talked about this quite hmm. a few times in different contexts, but I've, I think maybe in the last year realized that, you know, it's for so many of us, we kind of think we have to do everything by ourselves, you know, like I'll read the book, yeah. I'll listen to the podcast, I'll do the challenge, I'll do this thing by myself and, you know, you know actually getting help or support or you know a professional who's there to, to that's their job uh, you know whether that's a coach whether that's you know like you say uh, a group for support I think it's really important that I wish I'd learned that sooner in my life actually that you don't have to do everything by yourself yeah it, you know and it, it can be a it, it can be a really fulfilling thing as well that um we're all really obsessed now with efficiency aren't we you know we want to get things done as quick as possible we want to want them to be optimum we you know and therefore often we then think we need to do those things on, on our own for example you use running as an example so you might go out and do every run in your training uh, in your training schedule on yourself because it's a bit of a nightmare to orchestrate meeting other people to do those runs and you just want to get out and get it done and things but actually we on a deeper level, you know, we are social animals. So the, although it might not be optimum, the reward that we get for that sort of therapeutic value of being in it together, whatever that thing is, um, shouldn't be neglected, I think. 
Yeah, I know you're right. There's real value out there. Exactly. It might, you know, sometimes it's all about the times and the splits and the training. But as you say, there's so mm. many other benefits to, yeah, to why we do what we do. And, and definitely, you know, for me during the pandemic, not being able to be <laughs> with others, you know, that is not, um, it's not good. It's not good for an extrovert. Mm. Next thing I want to talk to you about, Luke, is the challenge that you are taking oh. on. Oh yeah. my gosh. So, you know, I've had people on the show who've done ultra marathons. I've had people um, on who've, you know, Olympic athletes, people who do different physical challenges. But I mean, I don't really know where this fits, to be honest. I feel like this is both a physical <laughs> and mental challenge. Mental. I know yeah. you're mental. Yeah. I know you're raising money mm-hmm. for, for mine charity. So yeah. really you tell us what's happening, what's the challenge all about and where did it come from and why are you doing it? Okay. So on the 1st of May, I'm going to be doing 5,000 chest to floor burpees in as fast a time as possible. Um, so 5,000, 5,000, 5, I just want people to hear that because if someone the says big do 5,000, yeah, if someone says do 20 chest to floor burpees or, or burpees for a minute, or, you know, you know, that's going to be hmm. tough. So 5,000, yeah. I mean, roughly how long are you expecting to be doing these burpees? So I think I'm going to try and do uh 10 burpees every minute on the minute for 50 minutes that would give me 500 500 reps then i'm going to rest for 10 minutes which would make an hour uh, and then do that 10 times so 10 hours but that i think that is going to be a very very optimistic prediction um but we'll see how it goes we'll see how it goes yeah, the 1st of May, 5,000 burpees, wearing a pair of budgie smugglers, which I know you're a big <laughs> fan of. You, of you like me in those, in those pink pants. Um, <laughs> just to, for, my, for Mind Charity, which is obviously a mental health charity, just to get people talking about mental health, because I think this is really, really, really important, especially in uh, England, in the UK, where we, a lot of us, um, are brought up with this kind of like suffering silence, uh, stiff upper lip, don't make a fuss, you know, all this bottling up of emotion to the point where um, for myself, I, you know, I've had many battles with mental health, but the, the worst battle I had was when I was in my early 20s and it was all happening internally, but I felt such shame and guilt Um that I couldn't talk about it. I felt like that no one wanted me to talk about it and it all had to be hush hush and I I shouldn't make a scene and I didn't know who to talk to about it other than a therapist. Um, And I realized as I get older and I really start to own the difficulties that I've been through that actually everyone, you know, we all have a physical health, but we also all have mental health and that can be in a good state or it can be in decline and the fastest most efficient route to increasing um your mental health is sharing with people who can help you whether that's uh, family loving family members or like you've mentioned earlier trained professionals uh, or for me um fellow addicts who are in recovery and, and i think that's my main goal with this whole thing is to be like although there has been a taboo and a stigma around mental health we're now you know well in the 21st century and it's all going to be okay if we just share openly with the people who are cl- we're close to um and you know value that sh- sharing you know and, and and hear people when they do share listen you know yeah i think it is still 
Yeah, it's interesting because on the one hand, I think in the well-being and the wellness world, you know, I, I hear a lot of talk about mental well-being, mental health, you know, it's as if everyone's talking about it and everybody's embracing it. But actually, in reality, I, I, I you know, I mentioned this in an episode recently with Natasha Devon, who's a mental health advocate. And, and, you know, I was kind of saying to her that in reality, the people still feel like, you know, they can't necessarily tell not just their friends and family, but, you know, especially employers or people who they, they, they work with. They don't want to mm. be honest about if they're having mental health issues because they feel like they'll be seen as, uh, I don't know, that they feel like a burden or they'll feel like they can't, they, people won't think they're going to do their job as well or they're going to need time off or they won't get career progression. And so it's interesting that on the one hand, it feels like everyone's talking about mental health and how important it is and we should all be, um, you know, doing all these things to take care of our well-being. But there is still definitely a stigma that says, as long as you're mental health and well-being is good you can talk about it but if it's not that's yeah, when yeah. I, uh, I think people just go well i don't know and again you're right this british idea that you've just got to kind of get on with it you know like yeah. you don't feel sorry for yourself don't make a drama just yeah just get on with it i certainly i think grew up with that kind of message and mentality and it still i think does carry through with me with a lot of things because i kind mm. of think when, when i hear people talk about self-compassion and when i hear people talk about just being kind to yourself and that kind of stuff for some reason it just doesn't doesn't really resonate with me I, I find myself kind of a bit pulling back from that and being like well no because that's just if I do that then you're letting yourself off the hook or you're not being resilient or you're not being tough and it's really interesting when we interrogate it I think and go why why do we think that they're so different yeah I think that's a, a really great point and um it's going to take a while, isn't it? It's, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. We just slowly have to slowly have to break down the, those walls um, and, and get more comfortable. I think a lot of people are comfortable about saying we can talk about mental health, but still, even those people are not comfortable to say, and these are my mental health issues, you know, um, and that's going to, you know, that's going to go that's going to be you know a fair few years as we as we come to understand more about each other and we just slowly you know bring hopefully bring those walls down you know um but it's a day at a time you know a day at a time towards that goal hopefully and um, you know hopefully i'll add five thousand reps towards that goal <laughs> yeah and so people can support you by sponsoring so they can sponsor you with cash and um, we're going to leave a link in the show notes so please do even if you're out listening to this podcast whilst you're on a run walking your dog whatever you're doing if you can then please do check out the link in the show notes and and support so you're preparing physically obviously with your training mm. how are you preparing mentally for let's say 4,000 burpees in and on the one hand it's like oh amazing you've done 4,000 burpees keep going but it's for me I can only think of like mile 22 of the marathon where you've got mm. people going oh you're you're nearly there but you're thinking no I'm not you don't have to do a thousand burpees a thousand burpees is not nearly there and you're knackered <laughs> how are you preparing mentally for that part I, I feel very unprepared now that you've laid it out in, in such, in such <laughs> scary, scary terms as that. Um, so, I, well, a good anecdote is that I once, did, um, I once did 13 workouts in 13 hours for charity and I completely uh, underestimated it or I overestimated my ability. And what happened was I, so it was at my, it was at my old job. So it was in a gym uh, and I just got up as if it was a normal day. I had a bag of M&Ms because I thought, you know, I'm going to need a bit <laughs> of sugar. Uh, I went 
full send on the first three or four workouts, like absolutely going all in everything I've got. And then I hit uh, workout 10, so hour 10 of 13. And I started to feel this, I started to feel very different. Like um, I saw, there's a, there's a bit in the train, in the film train spotting where he overdoses and he goes into the carpet and he's just seeing the world like as if he's sunk in to the carpet and that's how i felt and i ended up having a panic attack in a in a cupboard uh in a storage cupboard in the gym that i worked at um at hour 10 and it really you know it was an awakening of uh okay i can't underestimate these type of things but i still felt like i had to f- uh, finish the challenge um a good friend was with was with me in the cupboard and she sort of said well these are your options you could you know, no one's gonna feel uh, no one's gonna feel bad if you decide to not do it. Or we could go out and we just take it, you know, an hour at a time for this last three hours. Which, like your mile twenty-two, three hours suddenly now seemed like three days. You know, that time was just stretched out in front of me. So that was my first sort of real visitation uh, in the hurt locker. It was a sort of a, a, a literal locker storage locker that i was in an actual you know a metaphorical hurt locker that i was in um, and since then i've actually craved i, I crave time in that space now because that's you know that's the, that's my frontier as it were as depressing as it is because it's only third it's only 10 hours um you know where there's ultra athletes who can go for days and days and days um i'm now started to crave time in that locker to really find out more about myself. So if I am preparing mentally, it would be two twofold. The first one is the mental confidence is going to come from the physical confidence. So I have in my training plan, and, and you know Sean Kazab, uh, my coach, um, we're actually prepping in a way that I'm going to get close to doing that amount of burpees before the actual day so that I know what 4,000 feels like before the big day itself so then I can manage all the anxiety and the attention on the big day and the fatigue at the same time so that's one way I'm preparing mentally is to just make sure physically the task becomes easier through training and then the other way is just spending time in that traumatic um, space and for me as odd as it sounds the other way that I can put myself in that space is by cold exposure so when I ran the half marathon, which you talked about, um, you know, it's January here in cold London um, and I ran it in a small pair of pants. The first sort of two kilometers, I was in that very anxious, traumatic space of, oh, my God, lots of pressure. I've said I'm going to do this thing now. I've already posted it on Instagram. I'm wearing the pants. <laughs> if I have a panic attack now and St. John's ambulance have got to like, you know, wrap me in a blanket, I'm going to be on, you know, on the, I'm going to be in some sort of magazine on updates on Facebook that, you know, mad runner in small pants has panic attack and wastes the ambulance, St. John's ambulance time or something. So it's about, for me, building my resilience in that traumatic space. And the only way I'm going to do that is by taking myself to that traumatic space. So the quickest way for me is doing things where I'm very cold. So jumping in freezing cold Lido near where I live, um, going for a cold water swim uh, by the sea or running marathons in little pants. 
gosh. Well, oh God, there's so much in there that I want to, want to talk to you about. But I think the main thing that I'm hearing, you know, this word around suffering and also the mm. word around traumatic. And, you know, in some ways it's like life will give us suffering. Life will give us yep. trauma. Life will give us these things. Unfortunately, I don't think anyone's exempt. And it's interesting that sometimes when, you know, people that have a desire essentially to do hard things, people that have faced a lot of challenges and overcome many things, you might think, well, actually I've had enough suffering. I've had enough difficult things in my life. I'm, I'm quite happily just get comfortable now, but it's quite interesting that I think a lot of people that, you know, the bigger the struggle, the bigger the strength, and they, they kind of crave that feeling of mm. actually I'm going to voluntarily suffer to push myself to the limits physically and mentally to see what I'm capable of to see what I can endure to become more resilient and you know we talk about all these words you know I, I certainly talk about these words a lot you know resilience and it's like actually they're just words if you're just talking about them or reading about them but I suppose when you physically are doing something hard like the cold shower or cold plunge or running a really long way or doing 5,000 burpees you know you're really I guess bringing those words into reality and saying mm. okay I am I'm volunteering to test my limits. So yeah, I don't know, would you, I'd love to hear really, why do you think, you know, is there an element of that within you to what I just said? Like, why do you do hard things? I think uh, what I've noticed about challenging myself in that way, it, there's a few things. So you, you find you find stuff out about yourself in those, in those moments, that is when you find your true nature and sometimes when you kind of lift that rock up and you see all those insects underneath which is your true nature you're kind of like okay there actually needs to be some work done here because i you know we we live in kind of you know a very privileged comforting society where for many people it, it, you know life can be quite easy and then you suddenly put yourself in one of these spaces and you realize you know that actually you're not as tough as you thought you were you know and and maybe time in this space is very beneficial um so so that's one thing the other thing i've noticed is that at the end of discomfort if you see discomfort as a frontier stretching out in front of you actually at the end of discomfort is is comfort and unfortunately vice versa is true at the end of comfort is discomfort so what i'm trying to say there is if you think of the things that bring us comfort right warm blanket uh, junk food uh, binge watching uh, stuff on Netflix or, or whatever. If I think of myself and I do a little thought experiment now, if I get up and I make a decision, I'm going to stay in the duvet all day. I'm going to stay in a nice warm blanket in my nice warm flat with my two cats and I'm going to wa binge watch The Sopranos on Netflix um, and I'm going to eat junk food. All those things are comforting things. But at the end of that day, I'll suddenly be irritable, restless, and discontent. And I'll start to have this feeling of, you know, I've wasted a day on this earth. You know, I've, you know, my time on this earth is, is finite, unfortunately, and I've just kind of wasted a day. So in that way, the further I've moved towards comfort by providing myself a nice warm flat, a blanket, uh, junk food, binge watching stuff, I've actually then moved into discomfort. So the same is actually true as well, which I've found is, you know, in lockdown, I ran my I ran my first marathon on a whim. I got up one day and I was just, you know, I was restless. I was kind of, um, you know, sick of being uh, just cooped up. And I thought I'm going to use my exercise to go out for a run. And that run turned into a marathon. And 
how I felt that evening, having run all those miles, you know, 26 miles, I felt amazing. You know, I, I, mm. I sat and I sat and had a, um, a takeaway in my flat and I just felt I just felt absolutely amazing because I'd taken myself into discomfort. I'd had that those dark conversations with myself about quitting and I'd come out the other side, you know, victorious, if you will. Uh, and, it, it, you know, the further I've moved into discomfort, the more comfort I'd earned at the end of that day. So I think that's what I'm addicted to, really, is this is this um, time spent uncomfortable is never it's never wasted. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I could talk to you about this all day, but I really want to talk to you about the power hour before we have to wrap it up. What is the first hour of your day typically like and what time does it start? Mine's quite flexible because, um, you know, I gauge it on. I, I, I'm going to be really honest. I love to sleep. Sleep is really important to me. If I, if I have less than eight hours sleep, um, I am the most grumpy moody irritable person so i prioritize that so if i you know if i'm uh, starting a bit later at work so my my work can be quite fluid then you know the time i wake up will change you know just by half an hour or an hour um but most days you know most working days i, I wake up 5 30 or 6 a.m um and then the first priority as any cat owner will tell you is to <laughs> feed the cats uh, because the level of drama in the house that does not end until they have been fed is intolerable. I can't say that. So that's the first priority. Alarm goes off. I make the move directly from the bedroom to where the cat food is stored, followed very closely by two uh, cats. Um, I open the cat food and then everyone in the flat can breathe easy. Um, so that's the first stage. Second stage is I actually have, um, I, I work with a supplement company called HM24 and I use a supplement called Rise, which is a powder. And I really struggle with, and I'm going to be honest again, I really struggle with drinking enough water um, or, or drinking any fluids in any way. So I kind of stack my habits, as James Clear would say. So I get my hydration goal in and my uh, nutrition goal in by using the supplement Rise. Um, it's just a powder, mix it up, um, tastes really good, but also I get all that uh, water in. Um from there, I move to my uh, my chair and I do 30 minutes mindfulness meditation. And that is has been really transformative in my life to start my day with that 30 minutes um, with myself uh, and with my breath um, and just giving me that clarity on, you know, who I am, where I want to go, my thoughts, my mind, my emotional state that day. Um, and then 
that's pretty much it. I'm ready to go, ready for a shower and, and to start my day. Yeah, and so in that time, not mentioned anything about the phone in that time. So in that time, do Ooh, you avoid yeah. the phone or does the phone mm. sneak in sometimes or is it just after yeah. the meditation, then you pick up the phone? On a good day, the phone doesn't sneak in. Mm. Um, but on a bad day, the, the phone definitely, definitely sneaks in. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those things of, it's, it, yeah, it, it, it sneaks in, but it doesn't sneak in as often as I manage to just get the cats fed and then mm -hmm. sit down with the breath and with my with my mind and yeah, yeah. So no it's interesting I just progress not I've... perfection <laughs> oh absolutely no I asked because for for me I used to you know even the fact that I'd share on social media what I was doing like for example in my power hour I used to for a while probably for about two years I used to do an Instagram story about 5 30 every day and whether that was because I was you know lacing up to go for a run or whether it's because I was reading or writing I'd just do a little post because I I don't know in, in one way it was like you know encouraging you know the listeners of the podcast and the whole message was like you know join me get up do the power hour but then I quickly realized I was like you're yeah going on your phone to do that and so yeah I stopped mm. doing that for quite a long time and it's really interesting you know obviously now we we all have our phones pretty much in our hands 24 7 so yeah for a lot of people they'll say to me now that they don't it's, it's quite a it has to be a conscious decision now I think to not have your phone either in your bedroom or to pick it up in the morning it has to for most of us be quite a conscious thing so mm. when you mentioned then the meditation I was thinking wow you know you haven't even been on your phone for a lot of people that is uh that is again with the the list that i did in january uh the questions a lot of people said about alcohol a lot of people's the next probably highest one on the list was phone people saying mm. i just want to spend less time scrolling on my phone it's the first thing i look at in the morning it's the last thing i look at at night and it doesn't make me feel good so i want to change that yeah, I totally agree. I think it, you know, if I did an Instagram story first thing in the morning, that would that'd be it. It'd be game over, you know. I'd be I'd be then in that sort of social media vortex so that the meditation definitely wouldn't get done. I'm lucky though cuz uh I'm 36 now, but when I hit 35, I suddenly realized that for about the th the first 3 hours that I'm awake, I look about 85, so I, I'm I'm staying well away from any sort of social media update unless <laughs> my face is is covered with a mask or something so i'm, yeah, I'm sort of funny. lucky and unlucky at the same time in that i've uh it takes my face about three hours to <laughs> three hours longer to wake up <laughs> luke you are so funny <laughs> oh my gosh thank you so much for being a guest on the power hour podcast i'm so glad we managed to fit it in thank you awesome thank you Thanks everyone for listening and I do want to close the show by saying that for anyone who's listened to this episode and feels that they do need to reach out for help or support then please do do that we're going to leave links in the show notes and of course as we've discussed in this podcast it is really really important that you seek professional help if you need to so thank you so much stay safe have an awesome week and I'll be back next week see ya Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.